0: If you have a copy of God's word, please join me in Genesis chapter 3. We're continuing our series Foundations and we're talking about key biblical themes that that uh, kind of spread throughout scripture and give us an important framework from which to work. And today we're talking about the fall. The fall. We've already talked about revelation, we've already talked about creation, and now we're talking about the fall. And you can see on the screen where this falls into the, the series and how this really uh, kind of, the, the, from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, these themes cover uh, important foundational truths in Scripture. I remember very distinctly, it was about this time of year. 2002, late January, early February. We were living in Jersey Shore, Pennsylvania at the time. My wife was pregnant with our first child and had a real bad case of morning sickness on that particular day. We were finishing up our schooling uh, to go into missions, and I had to run on Saturday morning to State College to return some books I had checked out from the Penn State University Library. My wife wasn't feeling well enough to go along, so I made the trip. On my own, I dropped the books off, and on my way back, the snow started to fall. It wasn't a blizzard by any stretch of the means, but I was on the interstate, and I, I realized the roads were getting a little bit slick, and so I, I dropped my speed limit down a little bit. I was going about 10 under, just trying to just take my time and get back to my uh, wife and soon-to-be first son uh, safely. Um, I remember coming around this, this curve, I had kind of settled in behind a semi, and uh, we were coming around this curve, and I, and I saw coming up behind me and then passing me this group of three college guys, and I said to myself, these guys are going way too fast. I mean, it's it's not super bad out, but it's bad enough. And it was just like it all happened in slow motion. I can still see it. They went past me, and they, they passed the semi in front of me, and and as they went to merge in front of the semi, they, they hit an icy patch, and they started to spin. They they went towards the median and they must have corrected or caught caught a dry patch cuz it, it, they turned back and went in front of the semi bounced off the guardrail guardrail on the right side back in front of the semi broadside and that semi he, he fishtailed trying to stop but he went right through the car i hit my brake and and did a 180 and that that i can still see my car spinning in slow motion and i ended up on the shoulder facing the wrong direction and it was just like a, like a bad dream played out slowly. You, wanted, you saw it coming. I wanted to yell out to these guys, slow down, stop, you're going too fast. And it was too late. I, we, we, I got to the car. The driver was fine. The, the kid in the back seat had had a, a cut on his head. It looked worse than it was. He was bleeding a lot, but he was fine. We helped pull the, the kid that was in the, dr- or the passenger side front seat out and dragged him off to the side of the road. We, our adrenaline was pumping, and, and we didn't realize it at the time, but he was probably already gone. And I had never seen anything like that in my life. I had never experienced an ugly accident like that firsthand. But it happened just so, so slowly, really. It was just as I played out before me. You wanted to reach out and move the vehicles aside and, and, and tell the people what to do and, and stop it. And as I was reading Genesis chapter 3 this week, the same thought came to my mind. I've read this story, I don't know how many times, heard it in Sunday school class, and I know the outcome. I know what happens when Adam and Eve eat the fruit. And I wanted to yell out as I'm reading the story to Adam and Eve, don't do it. If you only knew what was going to happen, if you only knew the heartache and the pain that was going to come from your choice, you wouldn't, you wouldn't do it. I wish I could step back in time and and grab the snake out of the tree and throw him and tell him to get out. Run away. Get away as fast as you can. As we know, that's not what happened. They chose to disobey. They rebelled against their creator. And sin came into the world. This is a significant event in Scripture because it shapes the whole redemptive scheme that we're going to talk about next week. I want us to read... The account here in in Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So we have here, if you're following in your notes, the, the, first of all, the temptation. This is where it happens. The serpent comes to Eve and begins to speak. I don't know what was going through her mind when she first heard his voice. Uh, it reminds me of the story of a first grader who was sitting in class as the teacher was reading the story of the three little pigs. She came to the part of the story where the first pig was trying to acquire building materials for his home. She said, and so the pig went up to the man with a wheelbarrow full of straw and said, pardon me, sir, but might I have some of the straw to build my house with? Then the teacher asked the class, and what do you think that man said? My friend's son raised his hand and said, I know, I know. He said, holy smokes, a talking pig. (laughs) I would think that that may have went through Eve's mind. I don't know. The snake is speaking to me. But scripture doesn't let us in on her thoughts, doesn't help us read between the lines. But the point of the the story there is that Satan came disguised as a serpent. We know it was Satan. Revelation talks about Satan being that old serpent. And he came to her subtly. And in his deceptive speech, one writer said, Lucifer makes himself sound like he is more interested in their welfare than God. But his ultimate aim is to make them his image bearers rather than God's. And you notice right off from the bat, they begin to tamper with God's word. Verse 3, Eve adds to God's word where she says, "Um, You shall not eat of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. Lest you die. She had added, God didn't say anything about not touching it, but Adam and Eve had, had made rules to hedge themselves around, just like the legalists, the Pharisees in Jesus' day. Their intention was good, but they made extra things that added to God's word and that muddied the waters. But Satan then began to call into question God's word and God's goodness. First of all, he says, You will not surely die. I don't care what God said. That won't happen. Satan has not changed his tactics. He wants us to doubt God's word. He wants us to question God's word. He wants us to wonder if that's really what God meant. And that's what he does with Eve here. Not only Not only does he question God's word, word, not only does he alter God's word, but he begins to get us to doubt God's goodness. He says, listen, God knows that when you make that choice, when you eat of the fruit, you're going to be like him. Did you know that God doesn't, doesn't want you to know that? Did you know that God doesn't want you in on this little secret? Oh, Yes. This this will be amazing. You will see things you've never seen before. You You will experience things you've never experienced before. But God doesn't want you to know that. See, when Satan comes to us and he tempts us, first of all, he gets us to doubt the accuracy of God's word, and then he gets us to doubt whether God is really good. Does God really care about you? Does he really have your best interests? In mind, he wants us to believe that God is a little bit like that parent who's trying to convince his or her child that the gluten free, sugar free, dairy free cookie made with flaxseed oil and wheatgrass is every bit as good as that other kid's ooey gooey chocolate chip cookie the size of a frisbee. (laughs) That his mom put frosting and sprinkles and ice cream on and then put another one underneath. Oh, but that cardboard cookie is just as good, son. <laughs> Satan wants us to think that God's like that too. That, that, that following God's commands is somehow prudish and joyless. That, that taking time to be involved in God's community of believers is second rate to using your Sundays for yourself. That giving of your tithes and your offerings to God's people is a foolish way to use your money. Satan will come at you at whatever angle he can to get you to doubt that God cares about you, that God's commands and that God's word is really good. So he challenges us by, by questioning what God says and by questioning God's goodness. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has said the decisive point is that this question suggests to man that he should go behind the word of God and establish what it is by himself out of his understanding of the being of God. Beyond this given word of God, the serpent pretends somehow to know something about the profundity of the true God who is so badly misrepresented in this human word. Satan wants us today to ask the same question, to to be confronted with the same question, did God really say? What is it that maybe you're struggling to believe? What is it that he's, what's his angle in your life? We're all maybe going to be struggling in different areas. Maybe he's saying, did God really say, do not lie? Did God really say to love your neighbor as yourself? Did God really say, children, to obey your parents in the Lord for this is right? Did God really say to be angry and do not sin? Did God really say I will never leave you nor forsake you? Did God really say I hate divorce? Did God really say I am the same yesterday, today, and forever? Did God really say put away all sexual impurity? Did God really say your sins are forgiven? Did God really say... You are my child? Did God really say, My grace is sufficient for you? Maybe one, of these, one or more of these truths you're struggling to believe today. Maybe it's a command. Maybe it's a promise. I don't know. Satan would love nothing more than for you to doubt God's word and to doubt his good intention behind it. But don't believe him for a second. His whole job is to deceive and lie. Someone with that kind of reputation must not be believed. Don't toy with temptation. Don't allow it in the door. Don't mull on it. Don't turn it over like a kid enamored with a shiny new toy. Eve sat there and listened. She had a conversation with him. She should have ran away at his first ugly hiss. But she sat and listened. Don't do that. Don't let the temptation in the door. Don't converse with it. Don't Consider it. Don't think about it. Run away. But unfortunately, that's not what happened. And so, not only do we see the temptation, but we see the sin. We see the sin in verses 6 and 7, the disobedience. It says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit, and she ate. And she also gave some To her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. These are some of the most tragic verses in all of Scripture. The moment when sin entered into God's good creation. says, Eve saw that it was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Listen, Satan is not going to tempt you and I with things that do not appeal to us at all. He is not going to bring things before us that have no promise of pleasure whatsoever. He's going to bring the the ooey-gooey chocolate chip cookies, not the cardboard ones that nobody likes. He's going to bring the stuff that appeals to us, the stuff that makes our eyes light up. And he knows where to get us. But notice, I think maybe, maybe more tragic than them eating, at least in chronology anyways, was it says that she gave some to Adam who was with her. Adam was right there. Sometimes our our stories picture it like Eve had to go run off and find Adam and say, hey, try this out. But that's not the biblical picture here. In Genesis 3, 6, that Adam was standing right there. Eating the fruit was not the first sin, in my opinion. Adam's passivity was. That's why when you get to the New Testament, to Romans 5, read it sometime. God holds Adam accountable. God puts the blame on him. God, was the, God gave him the command direct, directly, don't eat the fruit. And there he was just standing there, let it all un, letting it all unfold. And ever since that day in the garden, one of the biggest struggles for men, non-Christian and Christian, is passivity. Standing by while things happen. Allowing the world to go on because we don't want to get our hands dirty, because we don't want to get involved in confrontation, because we don't want to deal with it, because it's it's just too big of a hassle, and so we stand by. Adam needed to speak up. Adam needed to say, listen, we're not going to pay attention to that snake. And he didn't. He just stood there, and he watched it all unfold. Adam shirked his God-given responsibility in the garden to lead and to take care of his wife. And men have been doing it ever since. God has called men to lead in their homes, to lead in their churches. But far too many of us have run from that calling. We've followed our father, Adam. But even in the disobedience, even in the sin... Man's rebellion did not surprise God. It did not cause him to have to scramble for plan B, as we're going to talk about next week. God was at work, even in the midst of man's rebellion. And I want us to just notice two things about sin here. We could say a lot more, but first of all is that sin is subtle. Sin is subtle. Satan does not advertise sin. You know, like the, you know when you flip on TV and one of the... the um, pharmaceutical companies have a, has a commercial come on and, you know, they've, they've got to disclose everything now, all the side effects. They've got to lay it all out there. And it really just, I mean, I don't care what the medicine is, that the only thing you remember from those commercials is the side effects, right? Satan doesn't have to do that, nor is he interested in doing that at all. He is not going to let you know about the broken marriages. He's not going to let you know about the guilt and the shame. He's not going to let you know about the the, the broken relationships with your children and your friends. He's not going to let you know about the resentment and the anger and the hurt and the pain. He's not going to let you know about the ripple effects of your decision. He's not going to advertise that. He wants you to live in the moment and the here and now and to jump in with both feet. And sin is so subtle. He's not going to advertise it like a Vegas sign. If... If it was like a modern-day drug commercial, it might read like this. Sin might read like this. Side effects may include misery and loss of joy, broken marriages, increased guilt, alienation of children, stunted spiritual growth, moodiness, loss of life, broken relationships, hindering the spread of the gospel, and defaming the precious name of Jesus Christ. It's simply not worth it. And when you're tempted with sin, one of the greatest Weapons we have is to combat ourselves with the truth. What does God say about this? Because God will tell you about the truth. God will tell you about the the repercussions. He'll lay it all out for you. He doesn't have a problem with that. He wants you to know what's going to happen if you take the plunge. And then secondly, sin is irrational. Sin is irrational. Satan wants you to, to buy. He wants you to make those impulsive purchases without thinking. It don't make any sense. Think about it. Adam and Eve had everything they could have ever possibly wanted. They were lacking in nothing. They had daily fellowship with God. Every single need, every single one of their needs was met completely and perfectly. They did not want in any way. And the one thing God told them, he said you can have everything. Satan focused on the one thing that they couldn't have, but they had everything else. The most beautiful living conditions in all the world. But Satan got them to believe that one thing was keeping them from joy and from a real relationship with God. And they chose. They chose to rebel. You and I, every time we choose to sin, this is what we do. We choose something irrational. We choose to walk away or turn our backs on the loving Heavenly Father who created us, knows what's best for us, wants what's best for us, and we choose to do our own thing. How dumb is that? How foolish is that? It's like when you're talking to your, your little little toddler, and you say, Come over here for a second. And he doesn't know that you're holding one of those ooey-gooey chocolate chip cookies in your hand. And he thinks maybe, well, I don't know what he thinks, but he takes off. And you say, oh, and come over here. Come over here a second. Uh Uh-uh. He doesn't know that by coming to you, he's going to experience joy and bliss and happiness. And God says, if you'll just come to me, if you'll just follow me, if you'll just obey me, I've got, the psalm said, right, uh, pleasures evermore. I've I've got this for you joy unspeakable joy and happiness and fulfillment and peace it's right here in me and yet we go on uh-uh, we run the other way that's what sin is it's irrational thirdly we see the consequences of their sin the consequences of their sin we talked a few months ago about the holiness of God. God has to punish sin. He has to deal with sin. He can't just brush it off because of His perfect character. And so we see that He He passes judgment. And we're not going to go into all the details, but let's read it here, verses fourteen through nineteen. It's, and God said to the serpent. So He's going to deal with the serpent, Eve, and then Adam. The Lord said to the serpent, "Because you've done this, cursed are you. Are you above all livestock?" And above all the beasts of the field and on your belly you shall go. And dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he turned and said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. To which every woman in the room says, thanks Eve. In your pain you shall bring forth children. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you will return. The consequences of sin were severe. And maybe more than anything in severity sin brought death into the world. Sin brought death in several ways. First of all it brought physical death. Before that Adam and Eve had the chance to live forever. They were going to be in in the garden with the tree of life and there, there was no such thing as, as death. Sin brought that. Sin brought death. And their bodies were going to begin to physically deteriorate. And eventually, they would die because of their choice. But it didn't just bring physical death, it also brought spiritual death. It brought spiritual death. Sin separated them from God. No longer were they able to enjoy that close relationship. Now there was a barrier between them and God, and it was sin. Because a holy and a good and perfect God could no longer accept them as they were. They were now unrighteous and separated from God because of their spiritual death. I want to take just a second to underscore this, this, the importance of this point. There's a there's theological terms that are referred to as inherited or original sin. In Romans 5, which I referred to early earlier explains why we sin still today. This theological term of inherited or original sin finds its basis in Romans 5:12 where it says therefore just as sin Came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. There's this idea that God saw us in Adam as all sinning. Now, how that worked out. How that exactly happened theologically, Scripture doesn't unpack that. But if you go on in Romans 5, verses 18 and 19 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. That's next week. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's disobedience the many were made Righteous. So not only did Adam's sin bring sin into their lives, but it brought sin into every single person who would be born after them. We don't. We don't. Um, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. I don't know if that makes sense, but we were born in sin. We were born with that. Psalm fifty-one five. David says, "Indeed, I was guilty when I was born." I was sinful when my mother conceived me. We are born into this world as sinners because of Adam's sin. And because of that, we have a sinful nature. And because of our sinful nature, we then do sinful things. It all started in the garden. And because of that, we are all born sin. There's, there's none of us exempted from that. There are no, only, only one man since Adam has been born completely spotless and sin-free. And that's Jesus Christ himself. And so we are in this world now with sin in our hearts and our lives. You can see the consequences in the ramifications of Adam's sin are so far-reaching. So there's spiritual death that separates us from God, that makes us sinful people. And then there's eternal death. Death came in three stages, physical death, spiritual death. And then for those who never come to Christ, there's an eternal death. There's an eternal separation from God in hell forever and ever for those who do not turn to him in repentance. This is a really bad news kind of chapter. You know how when you, when you turn on the news sometimes at night, you're just kind of waiting, all right, like, okay, we got all the bad stuff, ISIS and, uh, and another uh, flu outbreak. And I mean, it's bad, bad, bad. You're like waiting for that good story at the end that they try to end on a light note. And they spend like 15 seconds on it. And you're like, well, okay, I guess I helped a little. Well, fortunately, Scripture's not like that. Scripture places an overwhelming focus on the grace and the goodness of God. But this, this backdrop of the fall makes God's grace stand out just so much more vividly, so much clearer, so much brighter, that we're foolish to bypass it. So yes, this is kind of a, a little bit of a downer of a sermon, but I don't want us to end simply focusing on Adam and Eve's rebellion and their punishment. Because even in this passage, even in this bad news, sad story of a chapter... God's grace is already beginning to bust through. And so the, the good news is seen in a couple different ways. First of all, the good news is that God seeks out sinners. God seeks out sinners. We skipped over verses 9 and 10. But they tell us that after, an Adam and Eve si- after Adam and Eve sinned, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. God began to call out immediately to Adam and Eve. Where are you? Where are you? Our God is a God who seeks out the sinners. Adam and Eve had turned their backs on them, and God God had every right to say, as I said a few weeks ago, all right, I'm done. I'm done. You made your decision. Off with you but he didn't. He came looking for them. They didn't come back with, a, with an action plan and how we're going to do better next time, or I'm really sorry with you about this, God, or I, I know I really blew it, but will you please forgive me? No. They were, they were still hiding. But God came to them. And several thousand years later, a man was going to come to the earth and he says about himself in Luke 19.10 that I came to seek and save the lost. That's the God we serve, the God who seeks out sinners for the purpose of saving them. There's not one of us he wants to leave where we're at this morning because some of us are really, really struggling with sin. Some of us are in the middle of that temptation. Others of us are like, just have dumped it, jumped in into the quagmire of sin with everything we have, and we're just full bore running from God. And I want you to know this morning that the God who sought out Adam and Eve is seeking you out today. He has come to seek and to save. The other good news is that not only does God seek sinners, but he saves sinners. And there's, verse 15 is just a fantastic verse. Look, look at this with me. Even in the midst of his curse on Satan... He says this, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. Some of your translations will say, he will crush your head. See, the New Testament reveals to us in Galatians 3.16 that this was referring to the coming Messiah. And it's just a very seed form of a prophecy very just beginnings of what would begin to be fleshed out as God will will talk to Abraham and then later on in the the Old Testament through the prophets, and this begins to flower and develop into a full-fledged prophecy where God is saying, one day a Messiah will come. One day there will be one who will defeat sin, who will destroy the serpent, who will crush his head and the enemy will be vanquished. According, one writer says, according to New Testament writings, Jesus is this offspring, foreshadowed in Genesis 3.15. He is the one who brings about the great reversal of mankind's plunge into sin and destruction. Jesus overcomes the curse of God upon humanity by defeating death and sin on our behalf. Therefore, according to, Biblical Christianity, Genesis three fifteen, points to God's promise to rescue humanity from its divine dislocation. We're we're gonna unpack that more next week and in the following week. But when we study Genesis Genesis three, we see the slow unfolding of rebellion and an insidious disease that enters God's perfect creation. But what looks like total loss and a complete upending of God's plan is actually the sovereign outworking of God's desire to save his elect through the death of his precious son. As I said at the beginning of the message, as I read this story, as I saw in my mind's eye Eve reaching for the fruit, I wanted to yell, don't do it! Stop right there! If you only knew... Some of you here in this room need to hear that same voice. Don't do it. If you only knew what would happen, if you only know how this is going to play out, don't reach for it. Don't turn your back on God. Don't rebel against him. Don't believe the lie. Don't do it. Some of you are flirting with sin. You're toying with it. You're you're giving temptation a second glance. You need to hear this this morning. Don't do it. By God's grace, turn and run. He promises all the resources you need to resist that temptation. As, As hard as it's coming at you, as fast and furious as his darts are flying at you, he promises That when you arm yourself, according to Ephesians 6, with all the armor of God, he's giving you what you need to resist that temptation. And then I know there's some here today who are like, well, thanks, Pastor. I could have used that exhortation last week. I could have used that 10 years ago or 20 years ago but it's a little late for me. I've already made some of these choices. I've already turned my back on God or I've already, already rebelled. I'm already knee deep into this sin and I don't, I don't know how the way out. The great thing about God's word is that we're, remind, we're reminded that our God is a God of forgiveness. He wants us to, to choose his path. He because he knows it's what's best. He wants us to avoid falling into sin. But for those who do, for those who have, he says there's a way back on track again. There is forgiveness. No matter what you've done, no matter how far you've walked away this morning, there's forgiveness and freedom in Christ. Turn to him. Turn to him in repentance, true repentance, not just a, uh, sorry about that, God, we'll let it happen again. Now, what were we doing here? But, but coming before him on your knees, saying, God, this was sin. This choice, this, this lust, this anger, this jealousy, this pride, this was sin, this was rebellion, this was treachery against you, God. And I come to you repenting and asking your forgiveness. And the Bible says every single time he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and give you a new start. There may be destruction left in your wake. There may be consequences that you still have to deal with. But he wants to give you a new beginning today. Today. I pray, I pray that you'll take that opportunity and go to him and start afresh. Let's pray. God, we are reminded this morning, out of out of out of the ashes you bring life. Out of the absolute ugliness and awfulness of the rebellion and the treachery that took place in the garden. The slow-motion train wreck of the temptation, of Eve conversing with the serpent, of of her taking a bite, of her turning to her husband and giving him something. It was just a, just a an unraveling, an ugly unraveling of your perfect creation. But even in the midst of that, you you knew exactly what we would need. And you had already planned from the foundations of the earth, before they were laid, you planned to send your only son to pay for that sin. The only one who ever walked this earth who didn't do anything wrong took our guilt, our sin, our shame upon his shoulders. God, I pray that everyone in this room would know that forgiveness. If they're a believer, that they would, they would know that forgiveness is still there, even if they've made some sinful choices. If they've never trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior and, and have never known that forgiveness, never known that freedom, that hope, may today be that day. May you move on our hearts today, God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.